This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. It's always the same. Bill Mel Brooks for you on this Monday. How perfect is that? High anxiety. And our next guest says, well, that's maybe kind of where we are in a time of high anxiety when it comes to the market environment. Mark Grant is back with us. He's managing director, chief global strategist at B. Riley FBR, joining us on the phone from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Mark, good to have you here with Jason and myself. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I was listening to your uh your uh, weather, 56, it's 83 in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> just <laughs> rub it in, yeah, rub it in. No, that's just not nice. It's not a nice way to start off a conversation where we're already talking about high anxiety. Yeah, well, that's, that's where we are, high anxiety. There is a lot of anxiety in the markets, right? We've got some normal, I guess, or I don't know how you would describe it, normal or abnormal volatility back in the markets. We've got midterms. Uh, we've got Germany's Angela Merkel stepping down as a party leader. How do you see uh, the market environment? right now yeah i really do the my commentary as you know carol out of the box goes mm-hmm. to about five thousand institutions 48 countries every day and i really do think this market is high anxiety it's, it's like playing with a knife with a jagged edge as you point out the big news of today was angela merkel is uh, stepping down as the leader of her party um, she said she's not going to run again in uh, 2021 for chancellor uh, she's been the either, if you want to use leading light, or she's been the anchor of the European Union. One of the main issues you've got right now is Italy, which is saying, this is our budget. If you don't like it, too bad. This is the budget. And they're heading for a showdown, in my opinion, with the European Union just when the leader, if you will, of the EU has uh, become a lame duck. So that that's one of the big issues. Well, and one of the things you point out is this idea of what's been working is not working anymore. We were talking about that at the top of the show, that the tech names, the big tech names, have really driven this uh, for so long. So where do you go from here? Where do you look uh, for some comfort when, in terms of sectors or names? Where, where do, where's safe? I'll tell you. I'll give you my opinion about that right now. Yes, I think the appreciation play, especially with the – uh, high tech uh, is over for the moment. We're, we saw the market almost 350 up today, and now it's down to about 55. Um, my favorite sector at the moment is uh, the closed-end fund sector. Uh, I can't give you names because that's uh, only for clients of the firm or clients of mine. But basically, there's a REITs, there's... Um, um, uh, funds connected to oil and energy, the MLP funds, there are convertible bond funds, and they're all uh, paying double digits and paying monthly. So I think a very good place to be right now is uh, this cash flow play where you get money every month and you can adjust to uh, what the market is doing because of it. 
Is well, that and, the, and that reflects something that we heard from our own Joe Weisenthal earlier, that this is a sort of, for lack of a better term, you know, you make a lot of movie references. I'll make one here. Like, okay. this is a show-me-the-money kind of market. This is not a, you know, pay me later. This is, you know, mine's a little more modern. It's, a little, you know, Jerry Maguire. <laughs> I mean, I like, I like high anxiety. That's fine. But, you know, this idea of, like, I want to get paid. I want to get paid on a regular basis. Is that the mood we're in at this point? I think so. I think that's the uh, better play because appreciation plays right now aren't working. I mean, you just have to look at it and you say they're not working. And uh, we've got the midterm elections coming up, which uh, could be very problematical, however they fall down for the markets. I, I think, honestly, there's not going to be any blue wave, but if it looks like uh, the Democrats are going to take over Congress, I think we're going to get a very negative reaction in the markets. Um You've got, as I said, the Italy problem. You've got the China problem with the tariffs and the Chinese economy, which certainly isn't doing as well as it used to do. So you've got a a bunch of... uh, factors here that are affecting the markets and I'd rather have the cash, just like you said, Jason. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, what do you think is the most problematic, um, I don't know, factor, Mark, if if you will, in terms of the investment environment right now? Is it actual Uh, fundamentals uh, in terms of growth slowing down, higher rate? What is it? No, I'll give you two, Carol. One is the midterms and the uncertainty that surrounds that. Mm -hmm. And the second is the Fed and what they've been doing. I think the Fed is a big cause of this uh, markets uh, currently, they've been raising interest rates, in my opinion, uh, too much and too fast. We even saw Neil Kashkari, the president of Minneapolis Fed, take that same basic view that, hold on, maybe we should slow down. I don't think there's any reason to return to some kind of normalcy after 10 years since the debacle with Lehman Brothers what normalcy was before that and what normalcy is now a decade later, in my opinion, are two different things. Mm -hmm. And I think the Fed and their continual push to raise interest rates, which, of course, affect mortgages, it affects, uh, you know, any kind of borrowed money, it affects uh, individuals, uh, HELOC loans, uh, home equity loans. Uh, It's just causing a problem, uh, pushing interest rates up this high this quickly. Right. We've already seen certainly some of that impact when it comes to uh, home purchases. Hey, Mark Grant, thank you so much. Mark Grant, he is Managing Director, Chief Global Strategist at B. Riley FBR, uh, joining us on the phone from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and his uh, newsletter, Out of the Box, which we check out every day. So, Carol, as you mentioned people have been exploring their lineage, as they say. Mm-hmm. But while it used to be, you know, kind of your your elderly aunt, you know, kind of mapping all these different things out, you know, sketching out the family tree. Right. It's become much more sophisticated. Right. DNA samples. And it's a big business. And that business has had some really fascinating uh, consequences. An amazing investigative uh, piece available on Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Terminal. Now, Drake Bennett is a projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg Business Week. He's here uh, with Carol and myself in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Drake, walk us through this story because DNA is out there increasingly with some unforeseen consequences. Right. I mean, it's interesting the way you put it. In a way, 
this whole world of geneal genealogy still is your elderly aunt. Um, it, there's this sort of long tradition of these amateurs who are hunting through, you know, county records rooms and, um, you know, cemeteries and old churches and things like that. And their methods have been basically they figured out a way to kind of hack these consumer DNA tests uh, and use them to basically find almost anybody. And the reason that's becoming more and more powerful as a tool is that more and more people are taking these tests. I mean, at this point, it's about 15 million people who've basically done these 23andMe or Ancestry DNA type tests where you spit in a tube, you send it off, and you get this uh, file information about yourself. Um, one of the unforeseen consequences of that is that um, by tracing your family tree, it's possible for people uh, to find you, even if you yourself have not taken the test, uploaded your data, or all that. And so tell us about that, because you say that, and I... Uh, Carol and I like to say, wait, what? <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, so basically, I didn't give any. <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> right, so, so basically you share a certain amount of your DNA with your relatives, and you know, the amount shrinks as you go further and further away, but it's possible to basically identify you based on information, based on a DNA profile of, say, a third cousin. And all of us have about 100 third cousins, so the odds are one of us have a third cousin who's taken the test, uploaded their information to one of these databases. So in theory, um, we could be found. And the reason this has been in the news uh, for people who've missed this is, is that there's been this spate of really dramatic uh, announcements and arrests made in these very old, extremely, you know, extremely cold, cold cases, the Golden State Killer case being the most prominent, but there's been, uh, you know, a dozen or more since then. Um, and the company we looked at is this little data science company called Parabon that actually has worked on almost all the cases since the Golden State Killer one. They offer this as now a service to law enforcement. They say, you know, give us the DNA sample from the crime scene, and we might be able to get you a name. Uh, what blew me away is in your story, you, you cite a stat. Uh, I think it was in the Journal of Science by some researchers over at Columbia. Uh, and they said that there's already, at least for Americans of European descent, there's already a 60% chance they could be identified because of a relative in a DNA database. For that number to reach 100%, the researchers concluded only 2% of the population needs to have uploaded their DNA. That just shows how kind of connected we all are but that's amazing right exactly and i think people probably wouldn't well i think a lot of people wouldn't have a problem with this sort of method being used to catch serial killers um but the question is there's this broader question of you know if it's being used for that it could can theoretically be used to find you for whatever uh and there's this exponential quality to our relationships where um if you, you know, if it's all about finding a second or third cousin, all of us have a bunch of second or third cousins. Right. You know, most families have someone who's kind of the resident genealogist. And so that information gets out there um, and then it becomes a way that you could be identified. Well, and it's easy to draw a line and, and probably right to draw a line between the privacy debates around our Facebook accounts and our Twitter accounts and everything else. Right. And this, which is even more. We were talking about this right before you walked into the studio even more intimate. I mean, this literally gets to the very core right. uh, of our human being. I said it's like giving away your social security number. Yeah, I mean, and it's just... like the operating code for how you were created. I mean, yeah. it's got everything in there. What's interesting that you mentioned Facebook, because I saw this C.C. Moore, who you write about in your story, yeah. who's, who's linked to all of this, where they find somebody who's got 
a genetic pool from two different kind of families and that by using social media and like news announcements yeah. and wedding announcements, they're able to kind of piece it all together. So it's like all of this coming together, so much information. No, exactly. I mean, for people like Cece, who's the, the genealogist that's at the center of our story, social media is huge. Basically, they what the, what the DNA evidence gives you is this set of relationships, and right. then you're using the information people have put up voluntarily about themselves to flesh it out. Just it, remember, you put it out there. It's there forever. I know. <laughs> we say it to our kids all the time. All right, Drake Brett Bennett, Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek. His story available now on Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Terminal. It's a must-read. Download it. Print it out. Read it on the train. Learn it. You know, Carol, I feel years beyond my actual age when I start to talk about this stuff. It's like, know your history. Know where you came from. And we spend so much time talking about modern technology and Facebook. I mean, we were talking about it ad nauseum uh, already today. There is a book out that... Anyone who wants to understand technology has got to read. It's called How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone. Uh, Brian McCullough is the author. He's based in Brooklyn, but he's been nice enough to come across the river to join us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Brian, great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like there are some people who will look at this and say, what's Netscape? And, And you'll say Mark Andreessen, and they'll say, you mean the venture capital guy? So how did all this come about? It started with your podcast, right? Right. Well, I mean, the, the, the idea for the book came first uh, because it just, uh, you know, there's other academic books about going back to the ARPANET and how, where the Internet came from. My idea was, like, what about when the Internet entered all of our lives mm-hmm. and infiltrated everything? Um, so more the story of it could almost be how the Internet happened to us. No one yeah. had done that book. Um, but I'm a web guy. I've founded three different companies. I'm used to having an idea and getting immediate feedback. You throw it up and find out what works and what doesn't. Right. So I'm getting these interviews, uh, and I'm thinking, five years from now, this guy will have two lines in the book. But why don't I just put up the whole hour I recorded? And that became the Internet History Podcast. Uh, got it. Got it. That okay. took off, and then now the book is the result. Well, what's interesting is I, you know, I came across a stat kind of prepping for this about – 4.2 billion people are active internet users globally. But there was a point where I remember doing a story, I'm not that old, where I had explained the internet and how it how it worked. It's kind of interesting. We take it for granted, right? Sure. Uh, but take us back to those beginning days. Well, so, you know, it's sort of the reason I start with Netscape and actually the Mosaic browser before it is Netscape being the, the first popular commercial web browser. It was sort of a chicken and an egg sort of thing is that the, the web had existed the internet had existed for 20, 25 years, but it was Netscape that made it sort of mainstream, that made it easy for people to get on the web. Right. And so when they, they get on the web for the first time, they see these cool websites and they want to go off and make more websites. And then when they make more websites, people want to browse the web. So Netscape, so it's sort of the chicken and an egg. They sort of rode, you couldn't tell who's causing the explosion of it going mainstream and, and who's writing that explosion. Because what's interesting, I mean, the web wasn't initially for us. Right. So um, as much as he will say otherwise at this time, uh, Tim Berners-Lee really thought of it as an academic sort of playground. Um, And and Mark Andreessen's sort of simple but big idea was he wanted to make the web sexy. 
He wanted there to be newspapers, magazines, TV shows on the web. He wanted there to be cat videos on the web and stuff like that. And um, so basically the, the Netscape, uh, the Mosaic and the Netscape browser were the first ones to think of mainstream users first. Well, and let's talk about AOL because you've got some great history about that company, America Online, as it was also known. <laughs> and one of the stats that I love in this book, at one point, 50% of the CDs produced worldwide ha- had AOL logos printed on them. I mean, we remember yeah. this just carpet bomb mm-hmm. campaign that ultimately was incredibly successful. Uh, so I spoke to Jan Brandt. She's the genius behind that. Um, and her idea was simple that um, she needed to get you to, to stick something in your computer. To be, she couldn't tell you what AOL was, what going online was all about. She needed you to see it for yourself and start click, 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 click. That was the only way she was going to get AOL to take off. So she just put it everywhere. They put them on seats in, in, in sports stadiums. They froze them and put them in Omaha Steaks. They put them literally everywhere they could think to put them. And I also love, I mean, moving forward uh, quite a bit, but I also love the story that you tell about the creation of the iPhone and the way that people had to maneuver around Steve Jobs, you know, in these little skunk works mm-hmm. that were happening inside Apple. You had to bring him an idea in just a certain way, and he wasn't convinced. You talk about this carrier that no longer exists called Singular, which I remember as mm-hmm. as an Atlanta guy. This was an unlikely and sort of uncomfortable alliance initially. Well, I mean, the, the, the jobs of having to uh, massage your way around Steve Jobs are, are legion and legendary. Um, but yeah, Johnny Ive says that multi-touch, which you know we can't think of a smartphone today without the multi-touch. And yeah. he, he brings the idea to Steve, and Steve says, eh, Whatever, and and he says that really bothered me because I thought this was a this was a big this huge was the idea. big idea. But yeah. then, as I think it's his quote or somebody else's, where he says, sometimes uh, an idea that Steve thought was was no good, he'll come back a week later and it's his idea and it's suddenly the most brilliant idea in the world. <laughs> right. I think I've heard that before among and, and <laughs> really one of the people. pieces of history you bring up too that I I had totally forgotten was this initial relationship with Motorola mm-hmm. that was. The best thing on the block. They came right. out with the razor. razor. Everybody mm-hmm. had that around, yeah. and then they create this phone, which was a total disaster. The rocker, the rocker, right? right. And so they, Steve, Steve doesn't want to. Steve Jobs didn't want to get in bed with the uh, carriers because he they they would dictate you know what you could produce and what sort of features it could have. So he thinks, all right, fine, we'll let somebody like Motorola that knows how to play with the carriers. We'll let them do it. Give me the best designed. They make the best phones at the time, best the sexiest phones, um, and they return this complete dud. That also, aside from being poorly designed, it was also like I think you could only load a hundred songs onto it. Right. So like literally, if it, the, the whole idea was they wanted to obsolete the iPod themselves, and they couldn't even Motorola couldn't even do that for them. Right. What about though? I feel like, you know, the internet went from being a place, I remember doing stories early on and going, you know, to government websites to get research Mm. rather than having to call them on the phone. And that was a big change for all of us. But then it went from being a place for information to a place where you shopped, the commerce aspect of it. Talk to us a little bit about that in the book. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a whole chapter on the birth of Amazon. It's sort of amazing in a lot of other categories, you know, uh, Facebook one, not MySpace, not Friendster or whatever. It's fascinating that in reality, they weren't the Amazon wasn't literally the first people to do commerce on on the web, but they were the first ones to do it in a major way, and they're still number one. Yeah, like that's that was something that like I actually thought in the research I was gonna find.
find these fallen. And there's some like open market and things like that. But the fact that Amazon was the first and is still the dominant leader yeah. is like really rare in Pretty technology remarkable. generally. Yeah. Right. Versus Yahoo sure. and Google, <laughs> sure. which obviously didn't turn out uh, exactly the way. You've got some great history about the very early days of Yahoo and, you know, Jerry Yang and David Philo and, mm-hmm. you know, the classic sort of entrepreneur, you know, story coming out of Stanford and, you know, kind of well, right. company and of passion, right? So Yahoo and Google are both coming out of Stanford right. and whatever. Um, and, and there's two things that you make me think of. Yahoo was never a tech company. They, they specifically said that they wanted to be a media company from day one. Yeah. And they weren't even a search engine. It was originally a human curated directory. The other thing that you made me think of is everyone thinks that, oh, you know, Google's this amazing company that solves search, and they are. But they also obviously created the greatest advertising machine of all time. Right. But guess what? They didn't invent that. Yeah. They stole it from a company called GoTo. Well, stole is sort of a strong word, but they because they did take what GoTo did and then did it the Google way, the better way, the smart engineering way. But I always I always think that like uh, Google's true business they didn't invent. Yeah. See, and I thought Al Gore created the internet and that was it. Uh, oh, Carol, I have that on. I have Too that easy. on page three of the book. I know it's yeah, in yeah. here. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, it's an absolute must read for anyone who un- wants to understand tech then and especially so now. Brian McCullough. Uh, His book is How the Internet Happened from Netscape uh, to the iPhone. Thanks so much for being with us. Imagine how the world could be so very fine, so happy together. That's how IBM feels. Uh, It's dreaming big today, uh, making its second largest technology deal ever, getting together with Red Hat. Anna Rana is Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Let me just point out, IBM shares are down about 4%. Red Hat, of course, the target here, up 46%. Um, Anurag, what do we need to know? Is this the right thing? Is this what gets IBM to kind of where it needs to be? You know, as we all know, IBM's been struggling to grow for some time. I think this is one... Um interesting asset or a very good asset for them that can catapult them back to growth again, both in software and in services. Um, there's execution risk, of course. There is integration risk, culture risk, but um, you know we think this is a good deal. What does IBM get now with Red Hat? So you may, at the end of the day, if you look at the enterprise tech spending, bulk of it is still in legacy systems, you know, on-premise systems. Um, it's about you know more than a trillion dollars or so. Cloud is only about 100, 200, 300 billion, no matter, you know, however you want to slice it. So as these older companies start to move their application, their data to the cloud, they need help. They need help from companies like Red Hat, Microsoft, VMware, where the older world was built on these ecosystems. So a company like IBM can use Red Hat's help to, you know, improve their software portfolio but also more importantly, they can create large practices around um, you know, Red Hat modernization of IT or moving off more stuff to the cloud in their services business. And that, I think, is also very lucrative. And remind us where Red Hat came from. I mean, we were talking a little bit before we came on air. You know, when I was coming up as a journalist down south covering the tech beat, you know, Red Hat was this very novel company up in Research mm-hmm. Triangle Park, really was on the first wave of the Linux revolution, you know, very iconoclastic uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, they've managed to, you know, they've had their ups and downs, their, their fits and starts, but they have emerged really, as you say, into this 
dominant force uh, really in the cloud. So how much do you expect they fit into the, the sort of broader IBM sort of culture, as, as Carol is mentioning? So I, you know, Red Hat has been the only, I would say, in, in our view, the only big uh, Linux player or open source player that's figured out how to make money in Linux and right. open source. So them, very good job. Open source is where a lot of the innovation is. That's what we see from, uh, you know, just generally what's happening both on the cloud and the on-premise side. You know, the issue that, you know, the one risk that we see is Red Hat has been creating products that will help, again, enterprises migrate their applications to any of the clouds, whether it's Microsoft, uh. Amazon, or Google, they're both cloud agnostic. I just hope for IBM's sake and you know for Red Hat's sake that the sales teams in you know IBM is not going to try to push them to say, well, when you go to clients, can you make sure to ask them to you know move some of that stuff to IBM's own cloud? You know, let the customer decide. If you're going to be that open, I think you're going to do okay. If you don't be, if you're not open, then it could. You know, cost some That's a great point. Agnostic, was... not a word that uh, is uh, <laughs> high up in the IBM lexicon, I believe. Well, especially if you think about their salespeople, right? You go in, you say, buy IBM. That's what they're supposed to do. But you make a great point because Red Hat is kind of the antithesis yeah. of IBM. Exactly. But, of... but but if you look at like, you know, how large companies have evolved, Microsoft is the perfect playbook for everybody to follow. Yeah. Steve Ballmer used to say, Linux is evil, open source is not good, I'm probably not say evil, but you know, anti-capitalist. Um, but if you look at today, uh, ever since Satya came in and he's completely changed the culture of the company, open source is very integral part of it, you know, GitHub uh, uh, acquisition. Yeah. Currently, for, close to 40% of workloads on Microsoft's Azure platform, which is their cloud platform, is on open source. Yeah. So if you don't right. evolve... I mean, it's going to be trouble. And I have a question. There's a story I printed out by Ian King. It came out on Friday, and I wrote myself a note. Is the IBM deal a peak? Because his story was talking about how um, reports from tech companies that make data center hardware and sell the services in, for the cloud suggest the industry's expansion is cooling. Western Digital and some others do not buy that? Uh, that's more on the hardware side. That's okay. the part of the business it's not very attractive if you look at microsoft's results just and that's days, not what this deal is about no, this is all software and services so when you know when i was here uh, what six seven days ago we talked about microsoft grew right. 18 percent in constant currency yeah. i mean it's remarkable now perhaps it's you know it could be high it could drop down a few points from here but having said that i mean growing close to double digit growth in the software world is i mean overall in technologies it's pretty good all right Last question for you, 30 seconds. Why didn't they do this deal sooner? I mean, oh, they should have. Yeah. I mean, they should have. I really, I really feel, um, you know, bad that they, they, you know, they could have done deal like this or similar deals many years ago, even at the time of Sam, you know, before Ginny. Right. Because they kept on spending money on buybacks and other areas where they should have just been buying technologies left and right. And, you know, it would have been a different company today. And I know because you can be quick, are they paying too much? 10 seconds. If it's a very high quality asset, you have to pay too much. There's no way out of it. All right. Great answer. All right. Anurag Rana, love talking to you. Senior analyst of software and IT services, keeping us honest, giving us the inside dish. Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, you are the best. Thank you so much. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Carol Masser here with you on a Monday afternoon. We got some deals. Big we got deal. a market that can't make up its mind. <laughs> Midterms coming up. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Neil Hennessy is here, Chief Investment Officer, Portfolio Manager at Hennessy Fund, $6 billion in assets under management. Neil joining us uh, from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. today, based in California. Hey, nice to have you here. I know you're there at the Schwab Impact Conference. Uh, it was interesting. I just saw, uh, Neil, somebody tweet, uh, Brian Westbury over at uh, First Trust Portfolios. He's the chief economist, and he says, it's a correction, not a recession. <laughs> kind of watching what's going on uh, in the market environment. When you look at this market environment, Neil, you've seen a lot of cycles. What does it look like to you? Well, this whole market reminds me of the 1982 to 2000 market, where the market was up each and every year for almost 18 straight years, with the exception of 1990, when the market was down one half of 1%. And Carol, what I'm talking about is during that time frame, we had 21.5% interest rates, we had 18% inflation, we lost 25% of the market cap in 1987, we saw 837 banks and savings and loans go under in the late 89 and 90, and then the dot-com craze. But essentially, at the end of the day, what we're experiencing now is our 20th correction since uh, 2010. So it does unnerve people. A lot of people look at the volatility, and they do things and say things and act in ways that they normally wouldn't do without the volatility. It's sort of like uh, when you have too much alcohol. Next right. thing you know is you say and do things you normally wouldn't do. Well, I love that comparison to the 80s, Neil, and it makes me think of the fact that Paul Volcker's book is coming out tomorrow. It's actually co-written with a colleague of ours, Christine mm-hmm. Harper, and he talks in that book a lot. We've gotten a sneak peek of it. Talks in that book a lot about that exact time frame you're talking about, and that was really the first time that the Federal Reserve here in the United States started to have a much more meaningful impact, uh, really invented uh, sort of the, the modern Fed. So how do you think about monetary policy at, amid all this, and how much do you worry that the Jay Powell Fed is doing all the things that it should be doing, given what you see out there? Well, I think the the interest rate scenarios, everybody knows that interest rates are going to go up. Uh, the feds are going to raise interest rates. It's not going to hurt business, and it's really not going to hurt the consumer. If you go back, like I said, in the 80s, I think my first mortgage was at 14 or 15%. Right. Now you're talking 4.5%, 5%. The difference is, is we saved money for a mortgage. The young generation doesn't save as much for a mortgage or want to sacrifice as much. But interest rates are going to go up, and it shouldn't be a, a surprise to anybody. But Every day in the media, there's a different headline of why something's, something's happening. It's the tariffs. It's higher interest rates. It's 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 that. It's the BRICS. Whatever. But the bottom line is there. You, nobody can give me a reason why this bull run is over, yeah. except that it's been going for nine or ten years. That's not a reason. 
And that yet, make sense. and yet, we've got the S and P today. It's a correction, ten percent down from its high mm-hmm. uh, back in uh, September. I'm looking at the Dow right now. It's down about nine percent from that early October mm-hmm. high, uh, and we've got the Nasdaq lower as well. Uh, and it was interesting. Our Dave Wilson had a great chart of the day. I just I just tweeted it out, and he just said that if based on if you look at the MSCI All Country World Equal Weight Index, that has fallen more than twenty percent from a January twenty second record. As of Friday. So this index tracks your developed markets, your emerging markets, count each stock the same. And so it shows you that that's a real bearish tone globally. Well, there's two things. Uh, number one, uh, the, the main fact you have to remember about trying to enter bear territory isn't a uh, bear territory. I like bear territory. That's number. good. <laughs> you just coined a phrase right I here like on Bloomberg too. Radio bear territory. I like, like it, it, Neil. Keep is, going. There's absolutely no euphoria in the market on the upside. If you look at the craze back in the late 90s, there was euphoria. The cab drivers in New York were telling you what dot-com to buy. Right. If you look into the 2005, six, and seven range, everybody was buying a house with no money down. Where can I get something? So those were euphor- euphoria. We do not have euphoria in this marketplace, and that's going to be a, a big player of what's happening. So when you, you look at the numbers and you go back to 2010, 14 of those corrections that were between 5 and 10%, you know what the recovery date time was from a peak to trough to peak was about 19 trading days. So you didn't have any time to get out or get in. Right. If you look at the one that was down when the market was down 15 and three quarters percent, that took 58 trading days to get from peak to trough to peak. And you go, there's no time to get out, no time to get in. And so why fret it? Just understand that the market's going to go higher. It's on a march to 30,000. And the reason it's going to go there is people don't believe it's going to go there. So, Neil, can't let you go without talking about a couple of specific names. We like talking and we love talking about specific stocks here. Murphy USA is one that you, I I believe, hold. Tell us about that one just because I don't hear that name a lot. Well, essentially, they're just a gas station operator. But interesting enough, when we try and look for value out there, we look for companies that have a price-to-sales ratio of 1.5 or less. So we're not going to buy, uh, pay more than $1.50 for a dollar in sales. And you look at Murphy USA, and you're talking about a company that earns almost $4.50 a share. They do not pay a dividend. And their price-to-sales is 0.2. So you're buying a dollar of revenue for $0.20. Cents. Now, in my estimation, there's a lot of room to get a dividend insti- uh, instigated and raised. And at some point in time, if you just move that price to sales ratio from 10, right. I mean, 0.2 to 0.3, that's a 50% run in the stock. There you go. Great to have you walk us through that one. Hey, Neil, thank you so much. Neil Hennessy, Chief Investment Officer, Portfolio Manager of Hennessy Funds, $6 billion in assets under manager based in Nevada, California, in our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.